Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Khreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Have you heard about Mint Mobile? Do you know what it's all about? Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those savings right on to you. I've been using Mint Mobile for weeks, and I've been impressed both by the quality and by the price. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can choose from three, six, or 12-month plans and say goodbye to a monthly phone bill. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash hive. That's mintmobile.com slash H-I-V-E. Cut your monthly wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash hive. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do, and how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future, so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation.
Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with a very special guest, someone you guys probably all know. I'm here with Stephanie Grisham, who was the press secretary in the Trump White House, the chief of staff to former First Lady Melania Trump, and author of a memoir about it all called I'll Take Your Questions Now, which was out on October. It was a very juicy read. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. And the title was Irony Intended because I never took the podium. <laughs> that is very true. In all your tenure, it was it was to the great consternation of reporters like myself. Yes. But we're so glad that we get to hear from you now. Particularly this week, we wrapped up this portion of the January 6th hearings. And I thought about you because you were still not physically in the White House, but you were still uh, in your role as chief of staff. Uh, in the White House on January 6th. I saw last week your name come up. So I wanted to have you here this week. Uh, Let me back up a a little bit. Earlier this summer, as you watched the hearings, you shared an image of a text message with former First Lady Melania Trump. And I'm just going to read it here. Uh, You said in in the screenshot of the text message, you said to Melania, do you want to tweet that peaceful protests are the right of every American, but there is no place for lawlessness and violence? And there is a one-word response from the former first lady, no. So tell me about that day, that text message, and and then why you decided to share it. Yeah, so I was working from home remotely in D.C. because the East Wing was basically, we were all telecommuting due to COVID, uh, Mm -hmm. which was at the first lady's direction, just I think is an important little distinction since she's been saying a few things. But um, I had had a bad feeling about it. You had, you know, you kind of could feel the the tension and the temperature rise in DC at that time that something was going to happen. You didn't know what. And then I think like a lot of people, I was just watching TV and I could see the rhetoric being thrown around at the rally. And then I saw the people going to the Capitol and, um, you know, watching the images like anybody else. I just, I felt sick. And Mrs. Trump had often been one of the people to be a voice of reason. She really didn't like violence. She was one of the, she was the first person in our administration to say something about Charlottesville. Um, I often, almost always could go to her with, hey, this isn't okay, let's say something. And even if it would upset her husband, she would do it. And that day I sent her the text that you just read and she wrote back just no. And I've said this so many times, but knowing her like I did, I just had this feeling like she knows something or, you know, she knows maybe her husband was planning to be at the Capitol. And for whatever reason, she didn't want to get into it. And I, you know, I resigned, I think maybe an hour later, I would say. Well, I'm so curious about that because because you say that both you had this relationship where you could come to her with stuff and that she didn't have a problem disagreeing with her husband on a day where it seems like the most logical time to speak up, the the gravest thing was happening and all the grave things that happened in in that four years of the Trumps being in the White House, that seemed to be the, the most perilous time. So what do you make of the fact that she was saying no? So the couple, so number one, there are two times that I will, I think forever be like, I don't know what happened. One is when she wore the jacket, the famous jacket, and then this day. I don't know. Um, But my opinion, my opinion is that she knew what was going on that day from perhaps meetings that she had been in up in the residence or phone calls that she listened in on. She was often in the room when he was on the phone with people. Um, They'd be on speaker together. So I just felt like she knew more than 
she was letting on. And I think also, let's be honest, she was at the end of, we were at the end of the administration. She was going to have to go home to Mar-a-Lago with him. And she was not going to have the layers of staff between herself and her husband that she used to. And I think maybe part of her was like, I don't want to get in an argument with him over this, you know, because we're leaving office in a couple of weeks. So I'm just going to go along and get along. I don't know. It drives me crazy because that's not something she would ever be okay with. It's just not. It's so incredibly confounding that that was the reaction on that sort of no-brainer of a day to speak up when she had spoken up in the past. Another confounding thing is that last week, the first lady, former first lady sat down for an interview with Fox News Digital, and she had a different side of the, the story to tell. She said, and I quote, I was fulfilling one of my duties as First Lady of the United States of America, and accordingly, I was unaware of what was simultaneously transpiring at the U.S. Capitol building. She added that she always condemns violence and that she would have immediately denounced the violence that occurred at the Capitol building had she fully been informed of the details. You, she went on to say that uh, you failed to provide insight and information into the events surrounding January 6th ahead of time. She says, and I quote, Miss Grisham was not in the White House on January 6th and her behavior in the role as chief of staff ultimately amounts to dereliction of duty. What do you make of that? Oh, there's so many things. Um, number one, as I said, I was not in the White House because a lot of us were telecommuting. And if we didn't need to be there, we were to work from home. And she was photographing a rug in the residence and I didn't really need to be there for that. So there's that. Um, and then, you know, if she says she would have denounced the violence immediately, the problem I have with that is I believe she didn't denounce it for like five days, even after, right. you know, I resigned. So, you know, that part of it's kind of odd to me. Um, and then the dereliction of duty and that she didn't know, look, I, you know, I don't know who wrote that for her. Cause I can tell you right now, that's not, she didn't write that. Um, it's fine. It's what they do. They deflect. They blame. It, you know, if she seems like she was maybe one of the only people in the world who didn't know this was going on. And then the other thing is just from an absolutely logistical, reasonable standpoint, the text that I sent her, she just said no. If she didn't know what was going on, I feel like she would have said, what violence? What's happening? So she knew something was going on. This I know. I wasn't surprised by the statement, though, you know, I wrote about all of this in my book. So... I think my tweet just might have set her off and she was getting a little bit of heat for that. And I know her when she feels she's being targeted or beat up in the press every now and again, she'll she'll want to fight back. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh, my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.
It's so interesting that you say this and it's brought up something that I have been paying attention to and I know that you've been paying attention to. The Trumps uh, don't spare anybody in their criticism, particularly of people that they view are disloyal. But I think that they are particularly tough on women who have worked for them or who they feel have crossed them in some sort of way. We've seen that certainly over the last five years, but particularly as these January 6th hearings, hearings have aired, we saw that last week. Uh, we saw that when, when Cassidy testified and we saw that with you, with, with the former first lady, we saw that with the Georgia election workers uh, who were then telling the panel about all the harassment that they endured, the death threats, because they had the nerve to go against fake conspiracy theories about voter fraud in Georgia. Does this jive with what you saw in the White House up close working with the Trumps, that they are more apt to attack women and, and basically call them crazy? Yes. Um, short answer is yes. Certainly with with the president, you know, he had no problem doing that with with women, especially. I mean, going back to the campaign, right, and Rosie O'Donnell and mm. that type of a thing. Um, with Mrs. Trump, you know, I'm really ashamed to say that that's not something that had occurred to me. She did do it with looking back now that I've got a bit of a more clear head. She did do it. She did it with Ivana Trump, who just passed away. She did it with um, Stephanie Winston Wolkoff. And those are things, you know, at the time, I was so entrenched with her. And you get into this bubble, and it's like, they're wrong, they did wrong, and that's all you know. And so, again, it didn't occur to me at the time that, yeah, she she does it too. You know, and even in the statement she put out about me, she put in a little dig at the bottom about Stephanie Winston Wolkoff. This isn't the first staffer who has tried to be relevant, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, she she does it too. Now, I guess to be fair, she usually is surrounded by women, Mrs. Trump. So that's who are you going to attack? But I would say short answer is, yeah, you know, it was interesting to me with the hearings, uh, the last, the very last one, that you had Sarah Matthews and Matt Pottinger sitting together and the president only attacked Sarah. And Matt, by the way, is a great guy. I don't want him to be attacked at all. But I think that why not do both? Um, so it's been really interesting. And, you know, I've had a year to deal with death threats and the things I get and the attempted smears. I've had, you know, I'm a I'm a drunk. I have addiction problems. Uh, they have they sent people to follow my biological father, dig into my family life, my childhood, which was tough. Mm. They've been doing this to me for a year, so I'm used to it. But um, it's been hard for me to watch with Cassidy and Sarah and even, you know, Alyssa Farah and Olivia Troy and a lot of the women who are kind of standing up and speaking out just get attacked over and over. Sure. Well, I think that this is part of the playbook. If you if you make these people seem like crazy women who are out to get them, then it's easier to discount the incredibly powerful things that they're saying and the things that they're recounting. I just want your take on some of the testimony. I know last week we heard about the the president throwing plates at the wall when he was angry. Did did all these things ring true to you? Yeah, everything rang true. You know, it was funny because I would sit and watch the uh, the hearings, and sometimes I would be with. I was at CNN, let's say one time, um, and people would look to me for a reaction, and I was like, no. I mean, this is this was life inside the White House, even when everybody was freaking out about Cassidy and what she said about, you know, Tony Arnato telling her about, you know, the altercation in the limo, you know, Tony had a way, he's a New Yorker, 
He tells stories. He definitely exaggerates a bit. So, you know, everything she said rang completely true to me. And also knowing the characters involved, the the maybe, uh, I could see Tony doing that. And so I don't think Cassie was lying about that in any way, shape, or form. Do I think the president grabbed for a neck? No. I bet he maybe grabbed a seatbelt from behind. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he did something physical. But all of it rang very, very true to me. Um, and I wish, I wish people could almost jump inside my head and be able to feel what I feel when these things are going on because it is all so very true. And... I don't know how to communicate that, you know, Um, and especially with what you're talking about going up against the whole, this woman's crazy, this woman wants to make money, she wants to be relevant, she's profiting, da-da-da-da-da. It's like, no, I'm just trying to express that this is truly how it is in there. Mm. Because you are so knowledgeable and because you have all of this in your head, it's been reported that you spoke with the January 6th committee. Can you talk about that at all? Not a whole ton. Um, I did. I did. I spoke with them twice. Yeah. And I would say that obviously I wasn't in the West Wing at that time. I was working for Mrs. Trump and we were largely telecommuting. Um, I had essentially been blackballed from the West Wing at that point by Mark Meadows, Mm. uh, which I write about very openly in my book. So, you know, he had done tried to do a lot to damage me, said I was leaking about big stories, etc. So I wasn't talking. No, no, no. It's funny because as a comms person, you definitely talk to the press. Sure. Did I talk to the press? Absolutely. Did I leak the story about the president and the first lady and their son going to the bunker? A hundred percent no. I would swear under oath about that. I wish that the reporter who got the story, Maggie Haberman, could. I understand that she can't say no because as you journalists know you can't talk about your sources I wish she could because it I wish the person would come forward because this person's watching me get vilified for it but no I didn't um but anyway so I gave them more of a roadmap right which so I can say I I did direct them to Tony Ornato I said you've got to talk now whether or not they did that because of me or because something led them I'm not taking credit for that but um Molly Michael Nick Luna a lot of the people who have been featured, I kept telling them this is who would have this information. These are the people who were close at that time. This is who you need to talk to about what would happen in the dining room, etc. So I would say I gave them more of a road map rather than information of what happened in real time because I was not over there. Um, so hopefully I was helpful in that regard. That's incredibly, incredibly fascinating to hear about. There there were reports in The Guardian that you had told them about meetings that happened in the West Wing between the president that he didn't want recorded. So they happened in the residence. Is that right? Well, that that happened often. So a lot of times the president would have people just come up to the residence at night. And working for Mrs. Trump, she hated that. And I agreed with her. You know, Sounds that's horrible. her home. It's your home, yeah, and she doesn't want people. So she always wanted to know ahead of time if people were going to be in her home so she could, you know, not walk out in slippers and a robe or whatever. Sure. Um, and so I had to be informed all the time if people were going to be up there. The usher would inform me. So I knew at that time that people like Rudy, Sidney Powell, etc., were going up there and that meetings were taking place. I don't know what was discussed. Who is? Who are some of the people that, that we would be jaw-dropped to find out would come up to the residence to have meetings at night? I don't think—I don't have any jaw-dropping ones, honestly. Yeah, okay. there's nothing—I don't have anything good there. Or maybe I just didn't know about those ones. But— uh yeah, no, it was all, it was all kind of White House staff. But 
depending on what was going on at the time in the world, I could always figure out kind of like, oh, Meadows and Jim Jordan are up there. I wonder if it's for legislation, etc. But at that time, I knew a lot of the lawyers were headed up there. Fascinating. So in your estimation, you know, the president has given a couple of interviews recently. He gave one to New York Magazine. He's, he's been talking on his own channels. Do you think he's running by the way he's talking about it? You know, every hour I change my mind and I do pride myself on really knowing the man. If you had to right now, yes or no, Stephanie, is he running? I think he will run because his ego couldn't take a DeSantis running, someone else running. I think he is just enjoying being king of the party. He loves those rallies. He loves people to adore him. Um, he loves the media attention. That should have been the first thing I said. But so if, if I had to decide right now, I think he will run. Now, I don't know how Mrs. Trump would feel about that. Um, I was going to ask you, does she want to be first lady? I don't think she would be happy about it. Not because she didn't like the role of first lady. I, you know, she did. She she wasn't maybe the most active first lady, but she did like the role. But I, she didn't like the people, the her privacy being invaded, her son, the scrutiny. What did she like about the role? Because it seemed like everything that you were meant to do as first lady, she didn't do and didn't like. Yeah, well, what do you mean didn't like? What, See, it appeared that she didn't lean into the things that most yeah. former first ladies did. Yeah, I, and I agree with that. It was a it was a struggle for us to get her to do yes. things, which I talk about in my book. Um, it That's a tough one, too. She does want to help children. I, I think she does have a, a very sincere heart for helping children, but I think she kind of wants to do it on her terms. Um, I think a lot of it, too, is that she didn't fully understand the role of the First Lady, and she took pride in kind of redefining it. I think when she figured out that she could do little projects like redo the tennis pavilion or put rugs in the residence and she could do all of that makeup free and in, you know, jeans and a T-shirt, let's say, I think that she then started to lean into that a little bit more. Um, sure. She didn't like to travel a whole lot. Her excuse was that she didn't want to leave her son. I believe that was true to about 50% of it. But her son's also a teenager who, let's face it, my teenager never wanted me around. So... Sure. <laughs> um, I think she, I know she did like the role and was honored. I will never say that she sat around and hated on it. She didn't. But it was a struggle to get her to do things. And I think that when you, when you think about her former life compared to other first ladies, she was a recluse. She stuck with her family and maybe went to a luncheon every now and again. And so I think going from that to what the public schedule of a first lady is was just a culture shock. I don't know. Sure. She, she she was not used to the life of being a public servant. That was not exactly the life she signed up for or, or what she wanted for yeah, her life. Yeah, exactly. You have said that you will do what you can to make sure there isn't a Trump 24. What does that look like? Just trying to talk to people, trying to talk to reasonable Republicans I think that the base is too far gone. I'm never going to, I mean, everything I say is just a lie. I mean, that people, a lot of people don't even think that the text that I released between Mrs. Trump and myself, they think that that's fake too, which I want to be like, hey guys, I'm not smart enough to create any kind of a um, fake graphic. But I want to talk to reasonable Republicans and even independents about who he really is, 
who the family is, that they do only worry about profiting off of the presidency. That is something I had to learn. I did not believe to be true when I first met them. They do come off very well as like, we just want to help the people. We're just, you know, Don Jr.'s great at it. Ivanka's really good at it too. Um, But I want people to know who they really are and that more importantly, I think that a, a second presidency, he will have no guardrails. Number one, I don't know who's going to work in that administration. It's terrifying to think about. He And, and he won't have to answer for it, truly. Who is his cabinet going to be? That's scary, too. And then a lot of it's going to be just about revenge and getting back at people. Um, me, personally, I think I would be one of those people now that has to say, I'll move to another country just because I don't know what he would try to do to me. I feel like I'll get thrown in jail. So I just want people to know who they are and that, you know, he's... Who are they're, they? They're con artists. Uh, he is a con artist. She is kind of lazy and living, you know, a good life. Good for her. She gets to do what she wants. They kind of have separate lives. She gets to spend his money and she's raising her son. So that's who she is. And then the kids, they're just all profiting off of this. The businesses... You know, even Kimberly Guilfoyle, look at look at the stuff she's charging for small appearances on behalf of her own future father-in-law. And this is money that people are giving, thinking they're like really going to help, you know, the stop the steal effort, etc. And they're profiting off of it. And I just want people to understand that. And I want to approach people in a way that's not attacking them. I want people to understand that I, too, fell for all of this. But I want them to know what I saw behind the scenes over and over and over again and what a look at the future could be. This is such a clear way to explain who they are. And I thought that that was really compelling. So I hope that everyone listens to that and and hears you say that and, and hears you say that you fell for it and that they should wisen up the way you did. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. This was fun. And I'm sorry about the kitten. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.